question this life podcast. Okay, so let me just introduce you guys officially. Okay, Jeff, this is John. John, this is Jeff. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Welcome, buddy. Good Thanks, John. Okay, Jeff, John, let's get into this. Let me present what we want to talk about today. Well, we're talking about, I guess, the idea of defeating nihilism, right? So nihilism being evident in society, everybody, well, there's this kind of trend at the moment where people are, are basically discontented, frustrated with society, right? It's like a couple of our conversations are spurred around this idea of how do we give our lives meaning? And then to add to that in the sense that when I think about life, I think that a lot of times the, the meaning that I've given my life is through a story, right? So we're thinking about, okay, well, how do we, if, if, if nihilism exists and, and, and people are disenfranchised, people are discontented about society, well, what factors really give us meaning? And then we kind of came to the uh, like the conclusion or maybe three pillars of of trying to break down you know how how we can give ourselves meaning which is the first one is giving um creating human connection so connection in relationships connection in society intimate relationships etc uh the second one was spiritual pursuits so in society having uh, you have society and you also have uh, the, the spiritual nature of the individual, right? So how do those spiritual pursuits uh, and, and spiritual connections give us meaning, motivate motivate us and, and help us deal with adversity in life, especially? And then the last one was um, that I think Jeff can talk a lot about is, is I guess, dealing with nature, uh, well, the connection with nature, okay? And using that connection with nature as something very as fulfilling as an energy source as something that again you know resonates with who we are and gives us a sense of purpose in that kind of reassures us that it's it's uh there's something greater than us in a way or it's just using that as a, as an anchor to um to to give us some kind of guide or fulfillment or extra kind of energy so they're the three um you know you guys I don't know which one do you guys want to have a go at cracking at, at at first. Well, I think they're all interrelated, right? And you do need I like you can kind of as long as you're not trying to be too literal. Um, if you have a figurative imagination and you can think of metaphor and the way it applies, basically what it sounds like the Trinity is just mind, body, and spirit, right? So mind would be the way we're thinking. The the nihilism, right, is our thoughts, our psychology. And body could be one individual's physical body. So a lack of exercise can really destroy your mental and spiritual capacity. But it could also be the body of humans, right? So your family, you know what I'm saying? So, so that's what I mean by try not to be too literal. If I say the body and then I start talking about needing regular exercise to reduce stress and to find more like to, you know, release endorphins and just to feel good about yourself on a regular basis. That's not all it is. It's never one thing with me. It is the whole spectrum of body. Right now, we are one body, the three of us. We are a body working on a podcast. We're having a conversation. So we are united through discourse. And so I just wanted to say that um, to start with. But um, yeah, where, Jeff, which one would you like to start with? Probably for me, and I, I agree with what you're saying, it's kind of, you know, the body can take on many shapes for me it was probably i guess nature was is the fundamental uh i think that like for me that's 
like kind of life starts with nature as far as you know some level of creation but mainly it's like nature's always going to be there and then the, then the human comes along and the human experiences nature experiences the beauty of sunrise sunset trees whatever you know the wind and then it evolves to the point that the humans are kind of coexisting in this natural world and then they want to make sense of it and that that leads naturally i think to a spiritual realm where one man says to another what is all this you know what why why do these things happen and, and i think there's a natural inclination for the human when they experience nature and life i guess and and nature is just the natural world around us i think there's a natural there seems to be a, n- a normal progression for man to want to understand his place in the whole dynamics and that takes on you know that can be a, you know from indigenous kind of dream time stories uh in a you know from an aboriginal point of view but it can be you know pagans and it can be just that that natural spiritual um quest i think and and for me that's kind of how i see the natural lineage of the three nature into the human connection both with nature and with each other and then the idea of of uh, extending our intellect or our understanding uh, into a, a spiritual realm. That's probably, if I had to think about it, <laughs> that would be it. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. And uh, um, yeah, so like I think Stephen mentioned something. Hold on, I'm, I'm on a blank right now, but I would like to touch on what you just said, Jeff. Like, but yeah, like if you go back, like humans need nature, right? And like um, that's where we're, we come from originally. And if, you think about stories like, um, well, if you want to go to the Bible, which is one of the great libraries of the world, is Adam and Eve, right? Born, born in the Garden of Eden, which is extremely beautiful, peaceful, spiritual. And then there's the stories. Oh, Stephen said that um, he sees th- things through stories. And that's what humans do, right? That's why we have stories. In fact, that's what separates us from all the other animals is our ability to to tell stories, to create stories. And those stories tie us together and create harmony, right? It, it helps us to, to, like Jeff was saying, kind of figure things out, right? So how do we figure things out? Well, we, te- we, we start telling stories, right? And uh, if one story is not good, then we refine it and change it. And, um, <laughs> and that story just perpetuates. And stories really create our, or sorry, control our spirit, Absolutely. Right. That's why we call the the gospel. It's the good news. And, um, you know, like media is now the new story. And if we talk about nihilism, I don't think nihilism is natural. I think it's I mean, maybe there is a natural element, but I think it's by design. Right. So these stories that we create out of necessity to know and love and work with one another um can go stray you know uh it can go astray and it can become dark a story of darkness and people i feel really deeply want all those things that jeff said right they want that social connection they want actually a spiritual connection in fact i think we need it all humans however it's the stories and whatever story is dominating the mind can take over it can reboot the computer, right? Reprogram yeah. the wiring of the computer. And that's what's happening with nihilism, I believe. 
um, mm -hmm. is the story that we're being told. Um, and we're not listening to our hearts. We're not going into nature enough. <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying religion's the best thing. I mean, I, I personally have respect for it, but their people are still human beings that are inside of religion. So one reason why people have left the church is because there's a bunch of pricks in there. You know, there's pricks, there's, uh, you know, there's even nihilists within the church. They're still human, yeah. right? But I love this quote by John Muir, and then I want Stephen to say something about what I said. But John Muir, a great American, I think I've spoken about him before. Uh, John Muir, one of the great American naturalists, much, much more than a naturalist, by the way, but I'm gonna, not going to talk about that. He said, I'd rather be in the mountains thinking about God than in a church thinking about the mountains. So very important, that connection to nature is actually, he also said that the cathedral of man is in churches and the cathedral of God is in nature and in the mountains. So he says a lot of this stuff. And what he's saying is nature is the key to spirituality. And it, uh, one more thing, I'm sorry. Also, like people that have mental illnesses and depression, people actually prescribe time in nature because the color green is the most soothing of the colors. It's the most calming. It's the most peaceful. I mean, look it up. There are power in colors. And uh, John Muir had mental illness, a lot of it, because he was just too damn smart, you know, and the world was crumbling around him. He saw the redwoods being torn down and he was just heartbroken. So he was a very depressed individual. But his wife, anytime he got depressed, his wife would say, go spend time in the woods. And he would. And he'd come back healed every time you know so very very cool what do you think about that story and nihilism Stephen? do you think the stories um can lead humans into a nihilistic state or nihilistic however you pronounce yeah, it yeah like for sure i think the stories that i i kind of tell myself is like what is nature or what is different aspects of society or, or what is what is my purpose and the stories that i have and I tell myself about those particular things, right? So for, for me, like the story I tell myself about nature, it's kind of like, it's nice. I believe in the power of the sublime. I think there's a really powerful undercurrent that we're massively disconnected from. Um, but I find myself, it, it's difficult to, to really spend time in nature in a way that's practical or rejuvenating. Um, however, the the thing that I do love is is the beach, especially. I love swimming in the ocean. I find it really, really uh, like recharging, rejuvenating, super. Like you can feel this majestic power of the earth, and you kind of feel really small. So I think there's a lot of power in nature, but I don't know if we know how to really use it. I don't know if we really use use it or utilize it. And we we sort of I definitely feel there's a disconnect from nature and society. It's like they're two separate bodies that coexist at the same time that okay now we're at home okay later i'll be in nature never that the home is actually in and constructed around nature and we're actually a part of nature it's just it feels like there's too much concrete um you know but with that said like i don't know i don't I like I, I guess the question for me would be how does the individual utilize nature in a practical way so that we can be re rejuvenated we can be nourished we can um, really connect with um, God or the spirit of the world or the sublime uh, instead of, you know, maybe you know, like sort of deacon, deacon, um, disconnecting from the 
from society and, and a lot of the artificial nature. So what do you do, Jeff, that allows you to connect with nature and how does it kind of work in your, in your mind? Uh, I think, I think first and foremost, it's, um, it's a commitment. So for me, it's, it's, it's daily. I mean, and you're right when you talk like your environment does not lend itself to the experience as much you are at a disadvantage being in a build-up area so for me 500 meters at the end of my street is a large you know bushland beginning of a, a large bushland into a gully um so yeah i mean I, I walk down there with my dog every day um that is part of my routine generally in the morning uh i'll often place my hand on a tree in a really practical way sense the energy sense the fact that the the eternal nature of nature um but i do do that um and like kind of brushing your teeth you feel funny if you don't do it so i mean i'm in the habit of doing that now it seems to serve me well the fact is you know at seven or eight in the morning the birds are down there the air is sweet it's fragrant these are these are very classic endorphin easy hits that you can get uh, that are free and they're readily available to me. I'm fortunate enough to live in a national park. John, I think, grew up in Alaska or whatever. Obviously, there's a an enormous sense of of the the, the grandness of nature in that in that kind of environment. Um, so for me, um, even if you're in an urban environment, I think if you take the time, a lot of it's commitment. I think when I hear when you were talking just then, um, I think most people will allow some hurdle to get in front of them that did not, that allows them to dismiss the opportunity or, or the, the challenge or the effort. So even watching a sunset, even taking five minutes to watch the changing colours or to feel the, the temperature drop. And I guess ultimately it comes back to being kind of present uh, and if you're in nature there's not a whole lot else going on you know if it's just me and the dog then I'm really you know I'm just there um, and and it's a it's a good way to concentrate on not doing anything and I think that is really the ultimate remedy at the moment the fact that we can do so much it's actually a little exhausting so if you can concentrate on doing nothing five minutes it's a fucking blessing oh. but yeah you um, a picture jeff you sent me a picture of it appears to be a lime tree that is in your yard or a citrus tree of some sort. yeah it's a citrus tree and that is you know you're like okay i got this thing five years ago or something like that or whatever 10 years ago and there was nothing mm. nothing nothing and then there's this explosion and there's got to be a hundred maybe not a hundred but at least 50 limes or citrus fruits on this plant and you just express gratitude. And also when you mentioned putting your hand on the tree, uh, like honestly, nature is healing 100%. And not only that, it is providing, right? Uh, all of the air we breathe comes from plants. Um, all the food we eat comes from plants, even the animals, because they feed on the plants. And so we're really one great system. And um, one body, as, we were, as I was saying earlier, can apply on many levels. We're one body 
Um, and we're interconnected with nature. There's no separation except for these big steel glass cities of concrete that we've built. And the problem with our modern society, and I think this is why a lot of us are getting sick, is if you look at nature, there's no real straight lines in nature. Yet everything in our society are straight lines. They're confining. They are prison cells. Now, that's an extreme hyperbole, but I'm giving an example to paint the picture of one way society can bring nature into the home. I mean, look, Jeff's doing it. I'm doing it. You can just bring plants and a fish into your home, right? And you have a little bit of life in nature in your home. But I would go further and start rounding those walls, man, make rooms more closer resemblant of nature by having curves in it. Because again, like I said, these weird, straight, rigid lines, just go outside and try to find a really erect, straight line. You won't see it. Um, so maybe that's part of our nihil nihilism. Maybe that's part of our depression. Um, depression is massively on the rise around the world. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you, Jeff. I think that there is a, just an amazing uh, freedom, uh, nirvana, or um, what Stephen said, he sublim sublime, great sublime nirvana within nature. And, you know, all the people that, all the prophets before us that reached enlightenment, well, what'd they do? They went out into nature for extended periods of time. So back to John Muir, that's probably where God truly exists. Let, let me ask you, John, because you lived in Alaska. Like, what was your experience like in the connection between, you know, like you said, so I live in an apartment. I should say that. I live in an apartment. I live in Bogota. And there's definitely a huge disconnect between any kind of nature and, and society. So my daily life, I love what John's, uh, I love what Jeff said in the sense that when I'm at my school, for example, and the weather's changing, the sun's out, you can feel it. It's really beautiful and take those moments. But what was your experience like? you know, growing up in such a raw part of the world. Um, and like, man, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm extremely kind of drawn to it, especially like the primitive stuff as well, like running as a pack, you know, in a group in the, in the bush, there's something really exhilarating about that. And something about running, something about being in a group, something about being away. The other thing that Jeff said that I liked as well is like all the distractions is kind of melt away. So you're forced to be in the present and because there is nothing else and that's, that is everything. And that's beautiful. So what was your experience? Like, did you, did you ever go hunting or fishing? Do you think that's part of nature as well as a, as, as an individual, or is that kind of against in a way, some of the, the beauty of nature? Um, well, my experience was wonderful. I do have to say that it was extremely impactful, right? Like, um, I mean, my my hometown, Juneau, Alaska, is in the Tongass National Rainforest. It is one of the most untouched regions in the world, um, and nature is just in your face all the time. And like you said, you're in the present because you go out into the woods, which is everywhere, uh, and there's bears, and there's wolves, and there's mountain lions, and you just feel vulnerable but you also feel empowered, right? And you're in the moment. So you're not like dwelling upon these dangers. You're more like just in the moment looking out for them. <laughs> but I, I, I really feel that I was blessed to be born in such a place. Um, but it's also a curse, right? A blessing and a curse because now I don't get to experience that. And I have a much higher 
standard for nature. And, you know, living in Bangkok, Thailand is a lot like Bogota. Um, and it's just a concrete jungle. And to get anywhere, you have to drive quite a ways. And then once you get there, there's so many people there that it's like, you know, so artificial. But to your second question, uh, um, Steve, and you can go ask more about nature if you want. Um, but to your second question about if I think that hunting and fishing, yes, I did do, I never hunted first. I didn't want to kill big animals, you know, uh, this is going to sound weird, uh, but I did fish and I, and I loved fishing. Do I think that that is against nature? No. How, how is that even close to being against nature? What is nature? Is a lion nature? Does a lion hunt? Are elephants nature? Do elephants go out and forage? Ants? Everybody. Life feeds on life uh, because we're all one. And it sounds brutal. And in some ways it can be. But living in Alaska, dude, even nature can be brutal, man. We're talking about avalanches, mudslides. I mean, people die all the time, right? By nature. Uh, earthquakes, volcanoes. We don't <laughs> have volcanoes near my home. But anyways, I just wanted to say that um yeah man uh get out in nature for sure jeff what yeah. was your natural experience like did you, do you have nature near i know you said you went to the parks and stuff like that but do you live in a big city tell, tell us about where you live jeff yeah um yeah for the listeners it's uh it's good to get some uh context yeah so i live uh in the blue mountains national park um so it's a it's a you know where I am is relatively suburban, but there is an extensive amount of natural life. Uh, huge, um, huge sections of uh, just trees everywhere, and with that comes the bird life and and wallabies and and whatnot. Um, so yeah, uh, I realistically I grew up kind of in suburbia um, in Sydney, um, so I think. My partner and I, when we travelled and we lived in Western Australia for some time uh, in a small town called Broome, uh, which really is just uh, nature personified, big, big tides, uh, sunrise, sunsets, big deserts. Um, so we got kind of something happened to us when we were living there and we came back to Sydney. We felt that we couldn't function as well or we were missing something. So... From that was the catalyst for us to first move to the to the coast, just north of Sydney. We stayed there for a couple of years. Steve touched on the power of the ocean, which I think is very true. I think for me, it's it's the highest uh, ecstasy that nature can give you. Um, but for some practical reasons uh, and for the joy of it, we moved um, to the Blue Mountains, which is kind of you know an hour west of Sydney. And really, so we traded the, the ocean for the trees um, and it's been a good move and it is a similar experience because really all I was doing at the beach was leaving my house, going down, immersing myself in the ocean, looking at the water. Um, it's and, and it's a similar experience in the mountains where I leave my house. At, at some point, I will stand in the bushland and it's really just trees, rocks, some trails it's a similar experience i guess thinking about it right now it's a form of worship that's that's what it is and 
it, it it's nothing less. And and that, I think that's where the commitment comes when when you start to realize the power um, that nature has. Then then you you do commit and and you do worship. And I think that can can have a a really good impact on your life. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I really do agree. And you were saying when you were in Sydney, you would go to the beach. And earlier, Stephen said that he loved to go into the ocean, right? Be uh, and swim and just be free and in the waves and you know, casting your gaze outward into the the flatness of the horizon, which is like I wouldn't say it's nothingness, but it is a way to peacefully shut down your mind, right? Um, and the world is seventy percent water or ocean and so that means 70 percent of our nature is oceanic um so i think it's a very similar experience is why you have surfers and other beach goers and water sporters right is they just want to be in with the water you know and you know we're a lot of water too so um yeah man i remember jeff just like my life you know like there's a six, seven, eight week period where the blueberries and salmon berries and huckleberries, it just a shitload of berries just explode. So it's a very damp, dark place where I come from. But when spring hits, you know why they call it spring, because it just shoots out at you in all directions and you could just eat endlessly. But don't forget, you're sharing those berries with the bears and they are around. Uh, but or so at our beaches, our beaches are not sand. They're rocky. Not 80% of them, 90% of them are rocky beaches. But man, we still go out there and have barbecues and family things. And you just look out and you can see whales breaching. I mean, could you imagine like the awe? And I don't care if you're a one-year-old or a hundred-year-old. Everybody across that spe spectrum is in awe of this, uh, of these animals of nature. Uh, even like cell phone junkies, you know, if you say, oh, there's a whale, they'll put down their phone and they will actually enjoy that moment. So, yeah, man, I'm looking at pictures of the Blue Mountains right now that look pretty exquisite. I like it. It's really nice and peaceful. A lot of good vistas out there. Um, yeah, well, to, yeah. Touch on, to touch on, you used the word all. And I think, um, I think when we were chatting during the week, um, I mentioned uh, the the poet Mary Oliver, you know, and uh, you know that's that kind of quote that was rummaging around in my head is you know pay attention, be astonished, tell about it, you know, and and to be in awe, to be astonished, is it's it's so liberating, and that's exactly how I feel as far as um, I just think it's a wonderful state to be in, and. Mary Oliver is a pretty cool poet. She had a real emphasis on nature, you know, instructions for, for living a life, pay attention, be astonished and tell about it. And I think the third line, tell about it, is that human experience. Once we, once we gaze in awe um, and we are, we're moved by that, then naturally, like you were saying, we're going to, we're going to tell about it. We're going to share the experience. We're going to create these stories that you mentioned. And that, that is, um, yeah, that's the human connection. That, 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 that's a natural outcome from, from your experience in nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Pay attention, right? Keep your eyes open. 
uh, look up and outward, um, be astonished, be awestruck, be mesmerized by nature itself, and then go tell the story, right? So tell about it. You tell the story, right? And hopefully you don't just say it was a beautiful sunset. Hopefully you show the listener the colors of the rays of the sun and the size it was as it sat over the ocean and descended and the creeping in of the darkness and the last birds fluttering by to find home in the darkness. You know, stuff like this, like you want to show. But yeah, no, it was amazing. Uh, very simple instructions for living. What's her name? Mary Oliver? Yeah, yeah. So she's uh, she's a North American. I think she grew up, she might have grown up in Florida, maybe. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. But yeah, she's, uh, yeah, she, I don't read a lot of poetry, but a good friend did give me a book of hers, Red Bird. Uh, but most of her poetry is geared around uh, nature. And I like that you, you quoted John Muir before, and that name uh, resonated with me because um, he's quoted a bit in the book Into the Wild, um, which they made that really popular movie. Uh, out of so there's a lot of quotes in there um that i think uh, the um the main character chris mccandless um he was a big reader and i think he he, he read a lot and I, I i gather he wrote quotes down and this book um whether it be the author or he's inspired by the the character he's writing about he quotes that john muir a fair bit and and he can cut through you know he can say a lot in a few words and these people that uh, committed themselves to nature you know if they're able to also put it put it down in writing they can say a lot in in a small amount and and that's a skill but maybe it's also the the weight of nature you know we can all relate to it so when someone lays it down when someone says something um, like Mary Oliver in three lines on how to live, you know, that's 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 the trick, you know, pay attention. And and classically now everyone knows that you're gonna um you're gonna see people walking with their phones, looking at their phones, and 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 ultimately uh that's probably not paying attention. There's plenty of time I think to to use these uh, tools that we have. But um, as you say, as you say, John, look up uh, and pay attention. And and there's a lot of beauty. In it. And I, th I think you can even find that, um, you know, in a built-up environment, I think there is still beauty in, in architecture. Uh, wherever you are, there are there is sky, there are clouds, there is, you know, the movement of the breeze. Um, and, and honestly, you know, there's beauty in everything. There's even there's beauty in decay as well. Let me ask you guys about this concept of using nature as a form of worship. I really like that concept. And it reminds me of maybe something else to add to that or to extrapolate from that is that maybe nature is a way of destroying the, the ego, you know, destroying our egoism. So it's kind of like, you know, when you're in nature, it's this... You know, it's it's not about you. It's about you connecting with the external, right? Whereas the ego and the egoism is all about me as that isn't my whole world. And there is nothing beyond that. 
So it's kind of like the opposite. And when you're in the beach or you're swimming in the in the ocean, I think you feel the vastness and you get an idea of the vastness of nature and how powerful it is and how small and kind of insignificant and kind of feel. Or at the same time, maybe you feel simultaneously connected to that great energy, that sublime or that that d- divinity of energy. But I, there is, there's got to be something in this idea that nature is a form of worship. Nature, nature is a form of connecting to the spiritual. Nature is a form of connecting with the higher, the, the whether it's God or something. Like why have all these people, uh, these prophets and really spiritual people disconnected from society and gone out to a cave and said, okay, I just want to meditate. You know, what's with that? There's, there's got to be something in that. You know, what what is it about being around other people that's distracting us um or what is it about being in nature that's able to give us something even though we're kind of alone that being with others just simply can't i'd love to hear someone take a crack at that answer uh yeah sure um it's the yin and the yang i believe it's we need balance in our lives and you know, we need each other. Like you said earlier, um, there's a, you you mentioned Stephen that there's a there's a bonding, a great experience that you feel when you're with others, when you're doing things like cooperating and producing together, eating a meal around each other. Um, um, yeah, and so I think that people, though, with their stories, as I said, the stories can change, right? The stories can go in the wrong direction um, at times. And the point is, is daily stress in life, right? So we need each other and we thrive off each other. But sometimes we it gets too loud, too noisy. People have too many demands and nature frees us of that. You know, Um, I used to hike mountains uh, every weekend in Alaska in my prime. Um, you know, in the summers I'd go, I'd hike mountains, go fishing in the winters. I'd go snowboarding still in the mountains, but, you know, hiking five hours up, you know, uh, you know, 1500 kilometers or more up into the, you know, up straight up, uh, was intense. It was the most intense exercise and cardio of my life, but the whole way through it, it was silent and peaceful, right? And you got to shed, all of that societal expectations and the noise of bickering and crying and whatnot, you know, and even just the banter from friends is nice to shut out once in a while. Steven, did I answer it? I'll, I'll try and I'll try and add something if I can. As far as I, I like the idea um, of worshiping nature, and, and I think I uh, alluded to it before. As far as it is a form of worship. It, you know, if you are committed to your uh, adulation of nature, uh, I think importantly, it's um, as Steve said, if you if you can get away from the I, uh, and and Steve referred to the the egoic nature of the human experience. Sometimes, if you can get away from the I, and and relinquish yourself of that, it's it's bloody enjoyable. It's it's liberating and it's it's um it's freeing. And I think anything that that kind of humbles you and dwarfs you, and John's experiences in Alaska are the same as you know Steve's experiences on the beach. That the vastness is humbling, 
And I think that's that's a really good way to understand your your place in the world in the in the the, the duality of it where you're like, wow, I'm actually nothing. This you know, this national park is enormous compared to me. This tree is vastly bigger than me. So you're actually nothing, but at the same time you are connected to all of it. So in that sense, you, it's a, you are everything because you're part of it. And there's a great quote. Uh, I just read it yesterday, actually, from the one and only Jesus Christ. Everyone who glorifies himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be glorified. So ultimately for me, if you can be humbled, in, you can find anything that will humble you in a really, hopefully in a wonderful way, not someone, you know, not not in a, you know, where you've been ridiculed by someone and you've been, you know, humbled in the sense that you've been proven wrong. But if you can enjoy the humbling experience, um, which I think nature can provide, then, then you, you know, you can be glorified as far as, it's it's such a powerful thing and and i when i talk about it i actually realize it means more to me than when steve asked me about it when we chatted about it you know a week ago um because i think i think it's kind of evidence-based and i think if people do it i think if they make a commitment to it there is proven um results and and yes people go to caves and they go to the desert, you know, 40 days, 40 nights. Um, yeah, to get away from, from you know, distractions, you're more probable to succeed um, if you do make that that big commitment, you know, to, to go and, you know, um, sit on the edge of a mountain. But that's, that's it's beyond people's reach. That, that, that kind of makes it seem unattainable, but you can literally just go to a grassy park wherever you live, lie down on a blanket, you know, stare up at the sky. People will get bored, you know. I, I know I get bored sometimes, but you, you can find a way to commit to that. And if you do, if you continually do that and you and you surrender to the experience, um, then I think to get back to Steve's point, yeah, you, you're, you're crushing the ego. You, you're you're finding yourself in a very natural state and I think that's a nice place to be. And I think it really, as Steve and I, when we started discussing this kind of topic, it's what you can come back to that is reliable. When you're in traffic and you're, and you're kicking stones thinking this can't be all there is, there are only a few things that you can really rely on. And ultimately, you place your hand on a tree you, by all measures, that tree's probably going to be there in 50 years when you come back as an old person, you know, with the exception of maybe a strong wind. But they're, they're set in the ground. They're, they're designed to handle that. And and all of nature is in perfect design, really. Yeah, nature is permanent. What, what about this idea that, and like you said, I think it's hard for, the, like if I told people this this idea, they're going to be like, yeah, that's kind of great in theory. But I think there is truth to it, right? When you're in nature or when, you, when you're away from society, your identity washes away back to its core self. So everything of like this concept of who you are, this, these expectations, responsibilities, pressures, and, and how people see you and how you see the world immediately are gone. 
right? So then what are you left with? You're left with the essence of who you are. And if you're a spiritual person or you believe in God, that essence of who you are is God, right? So then it's kind of like you're connecting that to God. And then you're having this connection with the environment, with nature and with, with everything, right? And maybe it's like meditation where it's kind of like, you got to put the discipline, like you got to put the, have the mental fortitude and the discipline to keep going back to it and then committing to it. Otherwise it kind of like every relationship, it deteriorates. And maybe that's the, maybe that could be the reason why people um, gravitate towards nature and then they can kind of open up because I think there is a permanence to that nature that isn't necessarily there with other aspects of society and even ourselves. Because who you are today could drastically change to who you are tomorrow or the day after we change. But the energy of nature, you know, that that ocean, like how long has that been there for, right? It's been the beginning of, of the earth and everything was created in the, in the earth and the, we're a part of that creation. So what does that tell me? It tells me that if we're all part of that, this this kind of permanence. I don't know. What do you think of that, John, is in the sense of like, you know, I'm not saying that I should go out in a cave and meditate. Maybe I should right? Maybe there is value to it. And maybe that there is this higher level of spiritual connection that allows us to connect with the, the, the creator or with that um, sublime or powerful intrinsic energy that, that we are, we are spawned from. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I think that this is where like the concept of meditation comes from, right? Cause when you're in nature, you actually get integrated into a great system um, that you are actually naturally create, uh, sorry, compatible with and a part of, um, you know, but I think that, <clears throat> I think nowadays you have people, all this talk about uh, meditation, right? And I think meditation, I mean, I think that the concept and the push for meditation actually comes from the fact that we've been removed from nature, because I think you're always contemplative and reflective and intact with the nature. So the nature becomes it kind of dominates your thinking, right? You're like, there's just so much beauty there that it's hard to think about anything else in the moment. And there's, it's always interacting with you, nature, right? You have animals around chirping, you have weird like twigs breaking behind you and you're like, oh, what's that? A rustling of leaves, you know? So you're always on your toes in nature in a sense, but it's, it removes everything. Like Stephen said, it removes all the baggage from society. And I think this huge push in popularity and like meditation is because we've been put into, um, into these artificial constructs, these huge human, you know, uh, what do we call it? Uh, hives or communities. Um, but humans are fighting to find a way to continue to relieve themselves from this burden of artificial reality, right? Like, um, then that's why we meditate. We now can do it in a room, you know, in a, in a straight line, boxy cell-like room. Um, and we can almost, well, we can't obtain the same exact, I don't think, but very close. You can silence your mind and become completely responsive uh, to the environment around you, right? Um, so I think that's where this like concept of meditation and this push for it came from because we need it. It's innate. 
it's innate. It's part of who we are. It's part of our nature. It's part of our soul. Um, and we've been removed from it. And so now we're fighting to get that back, right? We need to take back our peace of mind, our interaction with our environment, even if we're closing our eyes and laying on a bed. Um, but I think back in the day, you just sat next to a tree, right? Or you, you lay in the shadow of a tree and you looked up at the shimmering leaves and the blue sky and the clouds floating by and the butterfly, you know, fluttering by. Jeez, that was a lot of rhyming. It almost sounded like a poem. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but yeah, you, I think that's what that peace of mind does. Everything just comes together. You know, it really does. But I'm curious because I felt like this topic was sort of about nihilism. Is it not? Um, because I'm wondering where, do you guys think the removal from nature, right? The fact that we're not as connected as we used to be could be part of this giving up faith on, on a higher power, God, the spirit. Um, well, that's exactly what I'm thinking. That's exactly what I'm thinking. And I think that's the, that's the issue, right? Because no one is connected with nature. No one is connected with their fellow human. Right. People have lost faith in the institutions. They haven't got anything to trust. They're so caught up on, you know, with social media and, you know, things like um, anxiety and depression and a lack of purpose. As Jeff said, there's nothing reliable and nothing that feels tangible when you're stuck in traffic, right? Surrounded by 8 million cars, you know, wondering how you're spending your life and, and kind of frustrated that you want to get home. But what, you know, th this, it's like society is doing everything. It, it it's doing everything that uh, it's doing the opposite that nature is doing, right? It's disconnecting us in so many ways. So maybe the drive for meditation is is the is the desire to reconnect to something reliable, um, because if may and I think because we feel so lost as a species, you know, all these things, all these disconnects, you know, then then of course we're going to look for something else, and I think that maybe that's the, 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 it's causing this kind of like where like the a sickness or this discontent within society with humanity, because we've got nothing that really is connected to who we are. Right. So yeah. I think, I think that's, a, that observation is spot on. Like, let me ask you, Jeff, when you worked as a real estate valuer, you know, like, and you're driving around your car every day, how much, I guess, how much purpose and I guess your connection with nature and, and how you spent your time um, and how much, how much nourishment is there in the everyday man or woman going to work? And, and, and are they, are they, do you think they're striving for that connection and striving for that nourishment? Is that, is that what's missing in society today? Yeah. Uh, to some degree. Uh, possibly, particularly, I guess, if we look at the history of kind of mankind or humankind uh, and how long we, you know, we were cave dwellers and then, um, you know, agriculture, you know, a lot of people for a long time um, toiled. Uh, that's a very strong commitment to nature, just the the the, the harvesting um uh, element that so many people would have been a part of for a long time. So it's only been a short period that we haven't been as connected as we once were. So maybe to touch on what John was saying, um, it's kind of maybe something 
our DNA knows that we've kind of relinquished something um, to our detriment. Um, as far as driving around, um, you know, doing your work, I mean, uh, you know, there's there's a practical nature of you have to function. Um, but for me, uh, like meditation, uh, it doesn't take much. Uh, I, again, I... I there's such a narrative around people creating reasons not to do something that simply don't exist. And that's the egoic mind, creating reasons not to do something that's beneficial. You may as well just tell the truth and say, I'm lazy. I want to find on my phone. I can't find five minutes to meditate. Like that's that's the reality. Anyone can find five minutes. And if you can't, set your alarm five minutes earlier. In the end, you are making a choice. You're foregoing one thing in favour of another. So there, there are no excuses as far as I'm not pleading for people to go out and hug a tree, but it's. I think a lot of it's the proofs in the pudding. It's evidence-based as far as um, you look at how how well people are, That you know whether it be someone who surfs, someone who hikes, someone who is engaged in nature, even on a, on a simple level, a, a stroll in the woods, then uh, I think the evidence would show that these people live longer, healthier lives. So for me, uh, the data's there. And if people don't want to, and you and I discuss this kind of nihilistic uh, approach, good luck. It's, you know, you're missing the ride as far as um, I think Commitments to certain things, uh, they, they're not guaranteed, but they are highly probable to have a good, profound impact on your life. And if you don't want to, if you don't want to do it, you know, um, then just you know live with the outcomes. And that's um, that's a big, you know, that's a big point for me as far as when you know you and I spoke about nihilism and this kind of belief that life is meaningless i'm like wow that'd be really for me that would be difficult and unfortunate to navigate life the you know the whole of life like that uh, i just think there's way too much curiosity in the human spirit um to to go down that path and and ultimately if i can interpret the current culture there's an element of laziness where perhaps it's easier to be a nihilist than it is to actually get off your ass and 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 commit even in small doses to something that is that is tangible and that is real and, and that is nature that is human connections which can be simply you know going for a walk with someone or you know um sitting down and having a, a meaningful conversation um but to to dismiss all options, for me, it's it'd be a it'd be a a missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah. maybe just to yeah, sorry, John. Maybe just to frame this a little bit, in the sense that I see it as if people are telling themselves stories about the world and about why what they do matters or why they do what what they do doesn't matter is that I, th I think what we're looking for to kind of combat that is something that people can kind of rely on 
in the sense of, okay, well, I, I don't know if I can trust the education in, in, you know, institution. I don't know if I can trust if there's God, I don't know if I can trust, you know, that this job is giving me meaning, right? What can they trust to find meaning? So we're saying that, okay, nature maybe is a part of that, something reliant and reliable, right? And maybe the human can, you know, maybe that, I don't know what's going to happen when I die. I'm not certain about that. But can I be certain that nature is important? Can I be certain that human connections are important? Can I be certain about my spiritual responsibilities or my convictions are certain? Like, John, how how important do you think are a, a human connections something that is so innate in us again if they, if it's not there if we don't have them in in our day-to-day kind of interactions are, are we somewhat disadvantaged are we missing out on something or do, do we get kind of like like spiritually kind of sick yeah bankrupt spiritually bankrupt and uh yes we are social animals. There's no doubt about that. And that means that through the millions of years of our development or whatever, longer or shorter, doesn't really matter. Through our development, we are in need of each other. I mean, we come from nature and nature is filled with danger and vulnerability. And then you look at the animals around you and you look at your own skin and your fingernails and your teeth and you realize you are the weakest of the animals out there. Why are we on top? Why are we so powerful? Even if we're sick right now, which I think a lot of us are, um, we're still the most powerful animal on the planet to the the degree where we can actually affect our nature in a negative way, right? Building dams, um, et cetera. You can go on with all sorts of stuff. Um, But yeah, I think that without that, when you have these stories being told of distrust, right? This this nihilism, nihilism, um, you lose your connections. You start putting walls between you and the other, the people that made your life possible, right? Because none of us would survive without a group or community. None of us. It's impossible for a human to make it without a community. But as people grow older, they get bombarded. Um, Back to the biblical reference I made at the beginning of the podcast was, the Garden of Eden, right? And then you have the tree of knowledge. And the tree of knowledge represents all those stories that people are telling you, science, math, philosophy, politics. There's so many different stories, right? And the idea of the Garden of Eden story is that human beings fall from grace when they're bombarded by all these stories, by the tree of knowledge, right? Um, It's not a coincidence. I mean, the Bible, if you read it enough, you, I think everybody, if you read it enough, you will see the truth within it. I mean, this thing didn't last through all the library burnings for nothing. You know, it's not, it wasn't a chance luck or anything like that. But yeah, we are completely dependent upon each other. And earlier, Jeff was talking about how, um, what was he saying? Talking about what we were talking about driving in our car and how sometimes it feels meaningless and pointless. Like why am I in my car? And all we want to do is get away from all those, those like different types of shells and layers that are covering up our spirit, dampening the fire of our soul. Right. Um, I was thinking, you know, as I mean, Russia has been in the news a lot lately. So I think this is why this popped into my head. Um, uh, But you know those Russian nesting dolls, you guys? The Russian nesting dolls? It's like a 
a doll and you can open it and you take out another doll and you can open yeah, yeah. it. This is, I think, what's happening to us. This is the nihilist experience is there's too many shells covering. They don't know where the digging stops. They don't know, you know, and uh, I love it. It's very metaphorical, right? The last one is so tiny, like the real doll. The unbreakable doll is so small. And that kind of represents us. We are small, but together we can get bigger. But there's too many, I feel like there's too many layers uh, enveloping our soul, our spirit. And, you know, Jeb was saying that a lot of people are too lazy to go seek these experiences that we know through a million wonderful minds everywhere from Buddha to Jesus to, you know, um, John Muir, right? We know from experience that this is a way to heal ourselves and to reunite ourselves. However, there's, I wouldn't call it, it is a form of laziness, but I think that's because people have given up. They just lose hope because every time they peel back one layer, there's another false uh, false body, right? Another false construct. And so then they try to peel it back again. And there's still another thing to pull back. And I think that this just becomes too hard for most people to keep persevering, to keep digging. And they just give up. And they just go back to their social media and their couch. And they talk about how they don't have time. And uh, anybody that says they don't have time, think about your grandparents, okay? Think about your grandparents and everybody that came before them. Do you think you have less time than them? No fucking way. They had to wash their clothes by hand, hang it up. They had to cook everything from scratch. There was no 7-Eleven. There was no soda pop. There were no bags of chips or peanuts. No, you had to walk your ass all the way to the next farm or to the, the market and buy raw materials and go home and cook that shit then you had to draw water from a river, go down. You know, these people didn't have time. We have too much time. And that is a big problem, I think. We have too much time and we have a lot of stupid options to pick from, to fill our time. Um, but I like that Russian nesting doll little metaphor that popped into my head uh, because I really feel that that is the intimidation to reach and strive for the spiritual need, because I know that every single person has that need. And the people that are nihilistic or narcissistic have given up on that. They feel it's unobtainable and that's very sad. So it makes me actually feel bad for these people. I feel like it's a form of sickness and that they just need help. They just need a miracle. They need to be exposed to one good miracle, one good spiritual moment and they can start peeling back those layers and throw them away for good. But, you know, like <clears throat> one more thing I just wanted to say about the traffic, uh, you know, you're sitting there wondering, what am I doing here? And, you know, you're on a confined road and you can only take certain exits and you're going to one other box to show the house you're going to sell. And you're sitting in this shell of a house trying to sell it. And then you get back in your car. You know, I feel like my to extend my metaphor of the prison, I feel like we are in a prison in society um, because I don't know um, if you guys ever heard of the, um, the, what is it? The Stanford prison experiment. You guys ever heard about that? The Stanford prison experiment. So I'll, yeah. I'll break it down for Jeff real quick. Jeff, did you hear about it? 
I only, I only know of, of it. I only know, you know. Literally. Break it down for the audience, John. All right. So, like, basically, it was a, stan- a, a prison experiment done by Stanford University where they got some volunteer students uh, to do an experiment where they would go into the, a jail, not with real prisoners. There are no prisoners here. It's an artificial jail meant for the experiment. Now, they also had other students play security guards. Okay. And when you, these kids were good kids, good grades, they were, they were chosen because of their demeanor, kindness and whatnot. Um, and they did the experiment and within several days. So the first day was kind of, okay, people remained the same people, you know, not, nothing happened. The second day, not really much happened. There was a little bit more bantering, a little more complaining, but let's fast forward really quick, you know, like a week in, the students that were pretending to be security guards were actually starting to uh, enforce minor pain upon the prisoners. And the prisoners, which are college students, normal people that have never been in prison before, started fighting and rebelling. And, and, And so you actually have, it gets to the point where they had to stop the experiment early because of all the physical abuse going on. And I think that starts with the mind, right? The mind breaks down and then you can't control your actions. And this is what our society is like, prison cells. So any animal you put in a cage, you can see it with dogs too. If you put a dog on the leash, it will bark and attack. If you take the leash off, the dog feels safe. It feels free. It will not attack. It's only when they're in cages and on leashes in our cars and our highways and our jobs are cages and leashes. And I think that even though we have very powerful minds, you guys, they're so powerful. Once that scale tips, it's so hard to dig our way out. So, you know, for all those people that are experienced nihilism or whatever, narcissism, I pray for you and I hope you can get out of it because it is a deep, deep, dark pit and it just gets deeper. And I, I, I just challenge people to, to, to open their minds to others and just enjoy the time they spend with each other, but also make sure you spend time in nature to erase all of those prison bars and all of that leash work from your life. How was it? Yeah, well said. Well said. Well, you know, the dolls, you know, the, the dolls one inside the other, that's a metaphor for the layers of the artificial layers that the individual must a be and obtain and absorb to function within society. The core of who we are is none of that. But, you know, when you're forced to interact in a certain way, you're forced to maybe do a job that you don't really want to do. It's all these different layers of your identity. There are the coping mechanisms, there are ideologies. There are all these different layers of in your mind, but none of them are really real. They're just, as I said, they're coping mechanisms, their expectations, their behavioral coping mechanisms, their expectations, their uh, they're just is social standards and obligations, but they they do they exist? A hundred percent, yes, they do. Right. That Stanford prison experiment is super cool because I just it, it, you know, like you said, it goes to show that how much of our identity changes when we're in that particular environment. So when the prison guards become prison guards, they act like prison guards. You know, when the when the the students, well, I should say the students, when the students became prisoners, they they literally took on that role and it became like reality was distorted. Reality was distorted immediately. And it's like, how can you 
it just goes to show as humans how malleable we are and how vulnerable we are to our environment and how important it is, I guess, to be in an environment that is nourishing because if you're not, you're, you're in an environment that's probably um, quite toxic and, and, and difficult for, for the individual. So I think that um, is important, but yeah. Yeah. What do you think, think, Jeff? Yeah. To to add to John's point. uh, And I think we're kind of touching on kind of a, uh, society and and, and um, you know our, our mental health as a collective and as an individual and yeah I mean even for myself you know I went through a, a really difficult period for for a, a long time somewhere in the order of a year where um, I didn't have um, much belief in 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 many things and yeah, your kind of confidence gets eroded. Um, and I think ultimately when I look back at that, there's only a few things that I spent my time doing. I didn't, I, I virtually didn't work uh, for the best part of, you know, 12 months. Um, but what I did come back to is, you know, I, I did exercise to some degree, um, even though, you know, I didn't feel like it. You know, I did, I did take myself into nature and I can still, while John was talking, I was thinking about the the very few minutes of the day where I felt okay, that I felt moving towards exhilarated was when I used to drive myself up the coast um, and jump in the ocean and I'd have two minutes of joy where I wasn't thinking, um, you know, and, and the, you know, and your mental health's not great. The narrative can be incessant and it can be loud and I remember having those kind of the ocean kind of circumvented like it just cut off your thinking and and, you know there's a lot of work around kind of cold water therapy now um just the benefits of that you know you got Wim Hof kind of championing that and yeah I, I think for me I realized that that was a way to to shut all of the system down except for the the core system, you know, that, that keeps you breathing and 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 hopeful uh, for another day. And yeah, nature was a big help and and exercise and and for me, um, you know, prayer was also um, something. But I remember talking to my counselor who had a heart attack in between our. I think I saw him once uh, once a quarter, like every three months. He had a heart attack in between times that I saw him and he had a double bypass and something. He came back feeling much better because he'd unblocked his arteries. He said to me that one of the first things he thought about in hospital was how much exercise and how much I took care of myself, even though I was in, by his own admission, a very, very difficult spot um, with my mental health. So it was funny for him, who was really sound of mind, but clearly, you know, hadn't looked after his body, but um, heart attacks can be very much hereditary and, and not always kind of lifestyle. But for him to mention to me that he was, he admired my commitment, even in the face of what seemed to be a, a very dark period, he actually said to me, I, I thought about how much you're kind of doing, uh, and I had a lot of time because I wasn't working, 
And he he actually said to me, "I've made a commitment to improve my um, you know, my uh, my physical regime." Uh, and it was a it was an interesting little interplay between us. And I said to him, "Yeah, if I can help you, you know, a little bit on the physical side." And and ultimately, I said to him when when we finished up, and I was you know feeling much better. I said, "You've helped me on the on the the mental side, you know." And that's that was just a a, a very interesting kind of um kind of um situation that arose between the two of us but yeah to, to time with what john was saying um where we invest our time these things it's really important um so you know make a conscious choice of where you want to invest your time and if you don't believe in anything that's it's you know it's not it's a it's a kind of a difficult place to start with but my guess is that every human you know, uh, has an interest in some things. And, and I think what we're talking about with nature and human connection, which is, you know, if you're in a bad spot, what you do is, you know, you call your friend. And when you have those nice, meaningful, uh, unguarded conversations, they can be really fulfilling. It's the same as kind of what we're doing here, but for Steve and I, we go back a long way. So um, those those um, relationships and those connections are, are imperative. And, and that was another cornerstone that I didn't go away from, even in the, in the face of you know, some, some pretty dark times. So these are, these, are, these are constants, these are reliable kind of pillars that we can, um, that we can commit to and we can tie ourselves to uh, reliably because uh, they work. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that, you know, and I think that what we've discovered in this conversation, well, I think we all knew this to begin with, but what has come to light in this, uh, and we've emphasized in this discussion is a necessity for human interaction and interaction with nature and um, a balance uh, but also a weariness because we are vulnerable in nature and we are vulnerable in human relationships. Uh, it's just part of the world. And I think accepting vulnerability is so key and so important. Once you know, this is like you guys talking about being out in the ocean. You know, you're vulnerable. You can drown if you stop moving. <laughs> there are sharks especially, right? You guys got big ones over there, I think. Yes. Uh, but there are sharks, there are jellyfish, there are so many things down there and you are very vulnerable. You can't even see it. Um, but yet it's so peaceful because you do have to kind of propel yourself to stay up. That's a little bit of exercise, but you also have to just appreciate the moment. And when you're, when you're in a vulnerable state like that, I feel like all that stupid thinking stops right? All that noise just stops. And the only noise that remains is the word of beauty and the word of survival. And that's it. You know, it's quite simple. <clears throat> and uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's really important um, just to hang on to those two things. Um, and again, you know, we got to be careful who we listen to um, because oftentimes those stories are toxic, uh, poisonous, um, and they can send us on the wrong path, you know, of disbelief. Um, so, yeah, just wanted to throw that in there. I was just talking about the need for the balance, right? The need for the balance and the need uh, 
to 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 choose your time correct like choose your time how you use your time wisely yeah um, find out what is important to you write it down and then make sure every choice that you make or most choices that you make following that writing ex experiment that they are leading you to where you want to be um, because you know these words we're talking about the stories we tell we're talking about negativity the people that don't believe or hate society nihilist these are stories. These are stories that people are putting into their own heads. So also, you, unfortunately, you have to also choose what you're willing to put into your head uh, very carefully. Um, you know, hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil, right? Hear no evil. And in fact, you can go further and say, um, uh, well, I guess do no evil. But, but, you know, the point is, is like in the first verse of the book of John says, in the beginning was the word... And the word was with God and the word was God. So if we think of God as this creator, John is telling us that the word is God. So whatever we put into our heads, whether you're, you like to watch shock media on your, your stream, whether you like to watch the news, I, I say be very careful with the news, with the news on the TV, on radio, not so much radio, but TV is so destructive because the word is God. And if you put it into your mind, it recreates you. You become a reflection, just like those students in the, in the Stanford experiment. You become that. They say, if you want to be a millionaire, hang out with millionaires. Find a way to hang out with them, right? Uh, if you want to be a scientist, hang out with scientists. Surround yourself with those people because you, in the end, are ultimately the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And that doesn't just mean the person sitting next to you or your roommate or your child. That means the TV, the, the news network that you watch every night. I mean, like, just look at how toxic that stuff is. It's not news. It's sensationalism. And mm -hmm. so people sit there and they start to bond with these weird news personalities that are all those people do is point fingers at other people that is fucking destructive dude it's just horrible so we are and the word is god and in whatever we accept to put into this head of ours will be recreated through our own actions and thoughts so i do recommend choose how you spend your time wisely and choose what you put into your head wisely if you got to tell a friend that i'm sorry you're too negative you got to do that and you got to walk away. That's the only way to get away. I think that nihilists, all they do is they just consume devil words. You know what I mean? They just consume all the hateful speech, whether it be from professors in universities or the news media or celebrities, right? Like politicians are really bad. They're just focused on all the negative that they have no belief anymore. That's all they know. And they hate the negative, right? Because naturally we want to be positive. So what do they say? Ah, society's broken. There's no point in being here. But that's only because they're choosing how they spend their time and they're choosing the words they're putting into their mind, right? With disregard to how it shapes them. I think if everybody mm -hmm. has that understanding that you are what you eat, right? And we eat. Sorry to breathe for anybody that doesn't like religion. I like to quote it. I read the Bible, but we eat the body of Christ. That doesn't mean you're a, you're a cannibal. 
You're consuming Christ. And what that means is you're taking in his word into your brain. You're doing what he says to do in your mind. That is eating the body of Christ. You're not drinking his blood like Dracula. That's just stupid. That's the literal. You see, people are too literal now uh, because they, everybody wants to prove somebody wrong instead of proving somebody right and worth worthwhile, you know? Uh, well, maybe, so maybe in the defense of all nihilists out there that... You know, they've just lost hope and faith. You know, like to add to what you're saying, not diminishing. Well, that's what I said earlier is I feel yeah. bad for them because they've, they've lost something. They're on the wrong path. And it's yeah, they've lost hope and trust within every institution. And I think you, you paint a pretty good picture about the institution of, of, of meant to be news, informative news, which has become a program of div division. And if, you know, it would become entertainment, become a source of revenue, it becomes a capitalistic venture of, of propaganda, you know, it becomes a biased machine of, of, of just uh, rhetoric designed to, to get people to, to be illicit anger, right? So I think that's a pretty good evaluation that you provided. But if you, if you feel like that about the, the news, then imagine how people might feel about every other institution, as well in this postmodernistic society, right? So if feeling like that about, about science and about religion, about the education system and about community and family, it's, it's, it, it, I agree. It is sad. Um, but maybe that could, the idea going back to human connections, what I like about you said, you said talking, you said um, there's power in the vulnerability and I would add to that too. And I would say there's power in authenticity and because in the authenticity of human connections and, and bonding with people and, and being real and, and really sharing how you feel, how you think and your vulnerabilities and those insecurities and that pain, trauma, suffering, whatever, whatever it is, I think there's also a healing process that's associated with that. And if you don't allow yourself to be vulnerable, you don't allow yourself to enjoy or be able to experience the, the, the healing process. Yeah, now, you're not authentic. You're not authentic unless you're vulnerable. Exactly. And and some people, again, in their defense, maybe, you know, it's it's very hard to be vulnerable and authentic to, to talk about how you feel and say, you know, I feel depressed about this, or I feel anger about that. I feel limited. I'm experiencing this with my with my wife. I'm experiencing this with my family. And it's it's something that I'm really struggling with, or it's difficult for me. They're really tough words for people. And um, maybe the newer generation is better at it. But I think our generation generally weren't taught to do that. Um, one more idea to link, and maybe I will read some Bukowski to, to connect all this together is that maybe that's our state of mind. Maybe it's our state of mind. Maybe it's our, it's, maybe it's the story we tell ourselves about the world. Maybe it's the story that we tell ourselves about how we view the world. Do we view the world as a positive place of love and of nurture and, and, um, you know, of, of protection and safety, or do we view the world as a dangerous, ominous, dark place that's, um, that doesn't care about our individuality or our safety? Can I read this Bukowski poem out? Yeah, for it. All right, cool. Yeah. All right, yeah. cool. This one's like super depressing, but I want to like, maybe, maybe it kind of just, I want to focus on really simply is like, what is the perspective of the speaker? And this one's called. I love that you just told us. I love. I love how you preluded into this depressing poem about how we <laughs> often put depressing thoughts into our head, and maybe that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm not trying to depress anyone. I'm not saying this is true. 
I'm just saying that Bukowski's got his own um, point of view that I do like. Um, but yeah, I think it's worth, I think it's worth thinking about, like, I think it's worth analyzing his point of view. I want you to read it. I just had to point out the irony. I just, <laughs> I think, uh, I nice. think with Bukowski, there is, there is beauty in the, uh, in the ugliness. I think that is his absolute calling card. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Like he's drawing, he's romanticizing that, right. Or making it beautiful. He's teaching mm. us that. It's rough, but there's beauty even in the thorns of the rose bush. Yeah, and I think he strives for that beauty, but I think he, he's like he's also his view of the world and his experiences of the world. He's a man that's in, experienced huge amounts of suffering, and I, I don't, I don't know if he sees well. My for my take on Bukowski's work so far is that it seems like he sees the world as as generally a pretty horrible place. And I, I've heard a, a quote of Bukowski that all he ever wanted was a safe room to go into so that he could he could drink himself silly and be left alone, right? Because he was so kind of like traumatized or or had this um, discontent or um, distrust for the world and society and this deep disappointment uh, that, you know, he, he kind of um, was beaten down by the world. But I read this, it's not, it's not, it's a bit of a long one, but it's not too long. This one's called The Crunch. There's lots of enjambment, so bear with me here. The Crunch. Too much, too little, too fat, too thin, or nobody. Laughter or tears, haters, lovers, strangers with faces like the back of thumbtacks, armies running through streets of blood, waving wine bottles, bayoneting, and fucking virgins. Or an old guy in a cheap room with a photograph of Marilyn Monroe. There is a loneliness in this world so great that you can see it in the slow movement of the hands of a clock. People are so tired, mutilated, either by love or no love. People are just not good to each other, one-on-one. -on -one. The rich are not good to the rich. The poor are not good to the poor. We are afraid. Our educational system tells us that we can all be big ass winners. It hasn't told us about the gutters or the suicides or the terror of that one person aching in one place alone, untouched, unspoken to watering a plant. People are not good to each other. People are not good to each other. People are not good to each other. I suppose they never will be. I don't ask them to be, but sometimes I think about it. The beads will swing, the clouds will cloud, and the killer will behead the child, like taking a bite out of an ice cream cone. Too much, too little. Too fat, too thin, or nobody. More haters than lovers. People are not good to each other. Perhaps if they were, our deaths would not be so sad. Meanwhile, I look at young girls, stems, flower of chance. There must be a way. Surely there must be a way we have got we have not yet thought of. Who put this brain inside of me? It cries, it demands, it says there is there is a chance. It will not say no. That's it. Brilliant. Yeah. I feel because uh, of his pain. pain. I feel his pain, man. Like I look at his that poem and it's just like, look at the way that he sees the world, right? He sees the world as, as a terrible place, I think. And like i don't want to see the world like that but i think <laughs> he he sees the world like that 
And I, and I, I don't begrudge him of that or again, diminish his experience. Um, but maybe people that have experienced lots of pain also, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of broken by life. I don't know. I just thought that might be relevant in the sense of connecting it to the people that have lost hope or have lost a lot of hope, but there's still a glimmer of something still left inside of us to to fight for. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, John. Bukowski was, he's like well-known alcoholic, right? Yeah. 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 So I'm, there's beauty, like Bukowski is a perfect example of there is beauty beauty still exists in these dark, dark places, right? There is still a light shimmering, however dim it may be, uh, in the darkness of experience. But one of the problems with, like, say, alcoholism uh, is that he probably had these, these thoughts at a young age, right? He had some rough experiences. I mean, I think a lot of us have. And maybe he had tougher ones. But maybe he didn't have a rougher life than the three of us. We don't know for sure. But one thing I do know is if you start to medicate yourself with anything, you're unable to overcome that. And it just exponentiates in the mind. And so if you have a couple of few bad years and you're just reading all the negativity about the world because there's a lot out there and you're drinking every day, you will never be able to see through that. That will become who you are. They say alcoholics stop maturing, right? So if you if you start at an early age and you soothe your, you medicate yourself, your, your, your pain with this, you never learn to deal with the pain. And so the pain is always there every morning you wake up. Now I'm not disrespecting Charles Buskowski. Um, mm. so I'm not putting any shame to him. I'm just saying alcohol makes it worse to see through that darkness and to see the light on the other side and to aim for the light. And the moment you aim for the light, good things begin to happen to you. But if you never do, the words in your head are your God and they create you in that image. And I think that's kind of what helped in the Bukowski. And I feel bad because he is a great poet, a great thinker, but it's really unfortunate that he didn't get to feel that nirvana, that you know, sublime, sublime, that freedom of going into nature and finding love. You know what I mean? Um, anyways, I had to throw that out there because like I said, I have my own, you know, there's like, I feel like sometimes I have a little bit of an anger issue, like little things. Um, and I feel like that's something I should have been able to like examine in detail and maybe uncover and correct a long time ago. But because of like, I enjoy drinking is something I do quite regularly. Uh, I feel like I have never matured out of that. So um, just to say, you know, alcohol is not going to make anything lighter. It will just put more ash on the fire. It will just, just <clears throat> turn out the light. Yeah, I think um, Steve and I have touched on, um, you know, habits and, and society's expectations. And, and certainly uh, drinking is heavily immersed in the fabric of, of most western societies and i was wondering uh steve uh did you did you dig bukowski before i gave you that book tales of ordinary matters uh a little i just sort of sort of come across a little bit of his work and then i i read i think i read post office before that and then i read um tales of ordinary madness and over the last kind of six months of of I've read, oh, I've taught a couple of his poems over the last couple of years, which is cool. Have you? 
Cool. Yeah, and I think you also pinched um, The Prettiest Girl in Town. These are all just short stories. I think I only had two of his books, and I think you've got one, if not both. No, I've just got but, one. Uh, I've just got one. Okay. I, I, uh, I promise. Yeah, you, yeah, you can bring that home. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I want yeah. to bring in that home because I've got, I've still got it here in my bookshelf. So I'll be nice to I mean, get back to you in, in person. Yeah, and when you read Buke, you know he's he's amazing, and and I can dig him sometimes. Um, I wouldn't say he's a. I certainly don't want to personify him. Uh, he's certainly not someone. Um, uh, I think he's an example of what not to do. Um, a lot of the time as far as particularly lifestyle, which is what John touched on. <clears throat> I think um, I think as you point out sometimes, he's got a great ability to um, to not compromise. I think he he fought the good fight as far as um, uh, he, he held on to his um, his desire to write and and to be a, a writer and a poet and and he brought that to fulfillment, which is great. I think that's a, a personal journey that, um, would have been fulfilling for him and for anyone. And I mean, I like him sometimes, same as reading Hunter S. Thompson. Sometimes if I, if I read a bit of him, I, I notice that my attitude to the world is, is, is kind of tilting a little. And, um, and I'm not sure that's the best thing for me. And, and I think, um, uh, when I read other books that perhaps, um, a more inspiring than than perhaps I live a more inspired life, but yeah, he, he certainly lays it down. And um, yeah, just hearing you read his poem, um, yeah, it brought back some interesting uh, thoughts and feelings as far as how he perceived the world. Um, I think he's he's pretty stark and pretty honest, and I and I I think you know he was also pretty dismissive of a of a lot of things. Um, but I think if you asked him, you know, hey, you know, should I live the life that you've led? He'd be like, fuck no. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there'd be an element of honesty about him. Um, but yeah, to kind of uh, loop it back, it's, it's again, we speak of where we invest our time, you know, the choices that we make. Buke, you know, Bukowski loved the bottle and he, he chose that a lot of the time and he had, he, he did it. He had a really rough upbringing through his dad and physical violence, but he, I think he had a hard time uh, having meaningful um, relationships with uh, with women. Um, so I think you know to look at him. I don't think he invested his time that wisely um, a lot of the time. Um, and I think ultimately what we're talking about today, kind of getting back to the holy trinity of you know, sorry, just the Trinity. Um, there's been a little bit of a religious overtones, but it really is just the connection with nature, connection with uh, with people and, and people you love and trust, and you know the the the, the, the spiritual pursuits. Um, I think that they're pretty reliable, and and um, I think we all spend time. And Bukowski was no exception of spending time. Um, in a in a fairly self-indulgent way and, and and i'm no exception you know um wasted plenty of weekends chasing the beers but um but ultimately you, you hope to find some balance and i think that really involves examining where you're spending your time and um 
and who is you know and who you're taking instructions off you know we've quoted kind of john muir mary oliver you know jesus christ and and bukowski and you got to find your people to some degree and you got to find people that i think everyone's looking to be inspired or lifted up or just to i think people are looking for joy and and when you and i talked about having this discussion with the three of us i think we're, it's it's everyone's looking for a joyful existence and and i know that when you mentioned to me you found yourself in a a momentary um you know um pontification in traffic that you know life can be a bit cruddy i think i think we have to be able to remind ourselves of um, what is important and particularly what brings us joy and i've certainly concentrated on that more in the last few years based on the experiences i went through where joy was very lacking so that has given me the the kind of understanding or the wisdom to concentrate on things that do bring me joy because i i think or i think we all experience times where we're not joyful and i think uh i think a lot of the time um we can be i think it's readily available to us yeah it's that's well said you know the power of human connections and meaning and like you said finding things that you find um worthwhile to invest your time in maybe there is a way of of moving through things and still using alcohol maybe it makes it harder um but i think what i've taken out of this is is maybe maybe it's a reminder of um maybe it's a reminder of when i'm doing things giving those maybe appreciating those human connections more uh maybe focusing a bit more on on appreciating the, the present and the moment and maybe trying to nurture more of those those positive connections as a way of either healing or keeping there's there's something really powerful in altruism you know when you're giving and you're receiving and you're you know you i think you feel uh, a sense of purpose and i think those things are enriching and Bukowski, I, I think, had a, a life of lots of suffering and didn't experience lots of that. Um, but you know, maybe he he couldn't have, or maybe he he could have if he looked at life differently. Maybe it was also, as John said, that the alcohol not being able to to um, let go of his crutches and, and vices to try to move through that and face that um, pain and suffering directly. It's tough, you know, and we're all human as well. So nobody's kind of perfect, and we're just all kind of doing the best we can. But yeah, yeah absolutely. There is, you know, there's power in the human connection, and it's maybe it's the 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 anchor, like it's the the cornerstone of a, of a great of a great life. Um, good stuff. Well, I've really enjoyed this, you guys. I kind of got to leave in five minutes, so I just wanted to state that. But I I do think it's really important that we're conscious of these things. Um, uh, the the Trinity um, that Jeff uh, brought kind of into the discussion. Um, that it's so vital to have balance. Um, you know, um, you need social connection. Uh, there is healing in that, for sure. But there's also healing in knowing who you are. And if you only spend your time with other people, 
you never get to really be yourself, right? And I feel like that's where nature comes in is you're alone with your own thoughts and your own, you're, you can actually analyze who you are, like, who am I, right? Um, this guy, Jaron Lanier, he's like a tech, he's like one of the huge tech developers in the Silicon Valley. And he's, he's done a lot of amazing stuff and worked for Google and worked for a lot of places. And he wrote a book said, throw away your social media or something like that, get rid of social media. And he says, it is vital for the survival of humanity. We're facing existence, uh, sorry, a distinction, extinction just on, just due to the problems with social media, because he says in social media, you can never figure out who you are. And he says that adolescence, right? Um, Steve and I both teach adolescents, so we know a lot about them. Um, I'm learning about their, neurology and psychology and all that right now. And uh, they're, you know, adolescent people are trying to figure out who they are. I mean, that is, they're trying to fit out, figure out, and they're doing stuff to figure out how they fit into society as a whole. While they're still not parents, right? They're not adults, but they don't feel like children. They're definitely not children either. So there's, there's this little limbo. And uh, the problem with social media is that you're just consuming everybody else's activities, right? You're just like, Oh, and you're comparing your life to all these other people. And uh, sometimes people that live halfway around the world, you know, and uh, it's so dangerous because we never get time to be with nature in that peaceful hue of greens and yellows and whatever else may become reds uh, in the silence to be able to reflect on who you are. So I think that has been the basis of our discussion is that uh, nihilism is kind of fueled by the absence by the absence of the Trinity that Jeff said, the absence of real authentic human um, connection. And, you know, and then also the absence of spirituality based on the fact that we've been removed, we've removed ourselves from our natural environment, which is nature. So um, I think this was a wonderful podcast. Yeah, yeah well, that's, that's, that's good. Mm, agreed. Well, let's wrap this up, man. Um, Jeff, it was a pleasure to have you uh, talk to us. Thanks for making the time and the effort to do that. Uh, really, Gentlemen, thank you. It's been an honor and a privilege, and um, no doubt we'll do it again. I uh, hope the listeners got something out of it. And, um, yeah, I've already got a couple of little ideas rumbling in my head about what we can discuss later, and that's what happens. We, you know... We start uh, kick the hornet's nest, and um, yeah, we've, we've we've covered some good terrain today. And I'm sure there's plenty more. Like a bird on a tree.